Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the second reading is on page 1128. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Page 1128, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And uh, if you have a Bible handy, do turn back to that reading from Psalm 19. It's on page 552 of the Pew Bibles. And uh, let's pray as we turn back to God's word. 
Father, we thank you that in a world full of such confusion about life and death, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And we would pray tonight that you would help us to be those who understand uh, what you have revealed and also how to know you and how to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were going camping. They pitched their tents under the stars and went to bed. Sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes woke Watson up and said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I I see millions and millions of stars, Holmes said, and what do you deduce from that? Watson replied, well, if there are millions of stars and if even a a few of them have planets like our planet, then it's quite possible that um, somewhere out there in the universe, uh, next to one of these stars, there is a planet uh, sufficient to sustain life like us. Maybe we're not alone. What about you, Holmes? What do you deduce? And Holmes replied, Watson, it tells me someone has stolen our tent. What do we see when we look up at the skies? What do the skies tell us? If you ask a a poet or a scientist or an atheist, you will get lots of different answers. But in Psalm 19, God tells us what we should see. And it is a glorious psalm. C.S. Lewis once said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And surely he is right. It is truly glorious. It is full of God's glory and God's greatness. But I think at its heart, this psalm tackles an even bigger question than what do the skies show us? No, the really big question from Psalm 19 is how can I really know God at all? And this is no academic question that you might push around in a coffee shop over a flat white as you think about the big questions of life. No, this is a personal and urgent question. We've seen in the news over the last few weeks how death is everywhere in the world, how short life is. We live in uh, perilous times. And there'll be those of us who've come tonight and in our own personal experience of of life, perhaps even this week, we, we come feeling broken and tossed around by life and we look around at our circumstances and we cannot see God's hand at work in any way that we can understand, in the news and in our own lives. And faced with this kind of broken world and with the reality of circumstances that puzzle us, the question becomes far more urgent. How can we really know God? How can we know what he's like and what he's up to in this world? And there'll be some of us here tonight, perhaps even who have dragged ourselves here tonight with voices screaming in our hearts and minds that we can't even know God at all. Such is the chaos that we can see before us. And so our question tonight is an urgent and personal question. How can I know God? Psalm 19 gives us two answers, I think. First, God reveals his glory in the skies. This is verses 1 to 6. God reveals his glory in the skies. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. How is this glory revealed? Well, verse 2. 
day after day, they pour forth speech, night after night, they display knowledge. But again, how does this proclamation happen? Well, verse three, uh, they have no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It's um, it's a slightly tricky verse to translate. You might notice in the the Pew Bible, there's a little uh, footnote A next to the end of verse three, and down below at the bottom, there's an alternative translation, which I think actually in this case is probably more helpful. They have no speech, there are no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet, verse four, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Imagine you go to an expensive restaurant and you order one of the top dishes from the menu and the moment comes when the dish is presented before you and there on the plate is this extraordinary combination of arts and culinary skill and you're just amazed at what you see. I'm not, by the way, giving you an advert for pizzas later on tonight just to manage expectations of those who are coming. They are good, but they're not that good. But back in the restaurant, you're faced with this work of culinary art. There's no, there's no audible voice, but as you look at the dish, well, it proclaims the glory of the chef. You see it on the plate. You see how skillful they must be to create that. It's visual, not verbal. That, I think, is the sense here in Psalm 19. The world is full of proclamation about God's glory, but it's a message not with words, but rather one written on the skies. The image in verse two is of an inexhaustible fountain, a a spring with unlimited reserves which bubbles up and pours forth its glorious message of the majesty of God. And it just goes on and on throughout the heavens. God reveals his glory in the skies. It's worth seeing just how countercultural this psalm would have been. In the days of King David, the nations around Israel also wrote poetry about the glory seen in the skies. And in that sense, Psalm 19 is not unique, but there is a crucial difference. The other nations worshipped what they could see. The sun, the moon, the stars, as divine objects in and of themselves. But look at what David says. The sun is not divine. Rather, verse 4 In the heavens, he, that is God, has pitched a tent for the sun. The sun is likened, verse 5, to a bridegroom walking out of his chamber on the morning of his wedding day. His face is full of anticipation and excitement about what lies ahead. So too the sun setting off on its journey across the heavens. Or the sun is like a, a mighty champion, a warrior heading out to face any Um, opposition and the sun is too strong it marches across the heavens and it it reaches its full course every day it's unstoppable as it marches across the heavens it's wonderful poetry it's it's majestic but don't miss David's point this great sun this mighty champion it only exists because verse 4 God pitched a tent for it And if God could put the sun, which is so majestic, into the sky, well then how awesome must that God be? Now I know Psalm 19 isn't giving us a a scientific manual about how God put the sun in place, but it's very clear for David that God is the one who gets the credit 
for the sun being in the heavens. God reveals his glory in the skies. When we used to live in London, I remember walking around the city looking up at all the amazing buildings. I used to be, I guess in a sense, in awe at what I saw. London is full of the glory of humanity, impressive buildings and the banks and the bridges. And it is amazing what humanity, humanity can achieve over the centuries. But I wonder if we take time to step back and look even further up, not at the buildings, but at the skies. Not what man can achieve, but what God has achieved. I'm told the sun at its core is around 15 million degrees centigrade. That's the heat, verse six, from the sun. And yet it's just at the right distance from us that it doesn't fry us or leave us in the fridge. I'm told that the sun's circumference is 2.7 million miles around. And if you lined up little earths across the diameter of the sun, you could fit in 109 earths in a row across the diameter of the sun. It makes London look, well, pretty small. It's good for us to stop and to look up. Go to the peaks. And as uh, Tim was saying, look out over what God has made. Spend time filling our vision with God's glory as we look up into the skies. And of course, as we feel small and insignificant, well, we see how vast and majestic God is. God reveals his glory in the sky. Of course, there are some, in fact, many in our world who look up at the sky and they do not see God's glory. There are the Brian Coxes of this world who will tell us on BBC Two with great confidence that as we look into the sky, we see nothing more than a chance collection of atoms and molecules floating around, the results of unthinking, uncaused accident. And so how is this possible? On one hand, King David looks up into the skies and sees God's glory written across the heavens. And over here, a thinking, rational person looks up and sees nothing other than chance. Growing up, we had a very old black and white TV. I guess it it worked pretty well for most things, apart from watching the snooker. Um, But just occasionally, there were a few times when the picture would break up and go all fuzzy. And uh, we were never quite sure, given the age of the TV, whether it was the fault of our TV or whether it was the BBC that wasn't broadcasting properly. Was it the sender or the receiver? We, We couldn't quite tell sometimes. And the same question could be asked here in Psalm 19. When people look up into the heavens and they don't see God's glory in the skies, is, does a problem lie with the transmission, God's ability to show his glory in the sky, or does a problem lie with the receiver, us, as we look up into the sky? It is the receiver. Psalm 19 is very clear. The world is full of the broadcasts of God's glory. And the reason why we don't see what we should at times is a problem at our end, not God's. Our reading from Romans 1 picks up many of the themes from Psalm 19. And so, for example, in verse 20 of Romans 1, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
You see what the Apostle Paul says? There's nothing wrong with the broadcast. The earth is filled with God's glory. But what about the receiver? Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18 that humanity, we're trying to cover it up. We suppress the truth of who God is and of his glory. Think of a, of a child at the seaside on a hot, sunny day. You, can, you know the kind of games that children play on the seaside? They, they get a beach ball and they go out into the water with a few friends and they, they play that competition of who can keep the beach ball beneath the surface of the waves for longest. And you see a child there with a the ball kind of there beneath the surface and it's not, it's not very stable because it doesn't want to be there. And then eventually the, the ball comes bursting up out of the surface of the water and the, and the kid's flung back into the sea. I think that's a picture of what the world is trying to do with God's glory. Suppressing it beneath the surface. Pushing it away out of sight so that we can't think about it. But the thing is, we can try it for a while, but every act of human suppression won't last. God's glory will come bursting back to the surface. Paul is so very clear about that. And no amount of rebellion and suppression will ultimately work. And so, back to Psalm 19, King David says, God reveals his glory in the skies. But I guess we're left with a question. If humanity rejects God's glory, and if we're left in this position of glory but suppression, well, what hope is there? Where are we left with, with regards to knowing God? And that is why what David says next in Psalm 19 is so very important. Here's our second way that we can know God. God reveals his glory in the scriptures. That's verse 7 to verse 11. He reveals his glory in the scriptures. It's as if the sun sets at the end of verse 6 and then verse 7 onwards picks up a new theme. And what follows in verses 7 to 11, it's a it's a cascade of commendation about God's word. There are different words used. Law, statutes, precepts, commands, ordinances. And yet I think they all talk about the same body of revelation, God's word. And the psalmist, King David, he is euphoric about his experience of engaging with this word. He writes, God's word is perfect It is trustworthy and right and radiant and pure and sure and it brings joy to the heart. One commentator pointed out that um, these adjectives are are more commonly used to describe people, not books. And I think this is significant because for King David, behind God's word, well, God's word is not a, a list of dry commands. No, behind it is God himself, a living relational God who has spoken a living word. In fact, the the first half of the psalm, God is referred to using the more generic title for for God, um, the word El, which can be used of all kinds of different gods in the world around us. It's not specific to the God of the Bible. But from verse 7 onwards, his name changes to the Lord. That is the special covenant name that God's people Israel used for God himself. And it speaks of a God who speaks and relates 
And if the first half of the psalm shows us God's general revelation to the whole world, well, the rest of the psalm shows us God's special, specific revelation to his people. And so talking about God's word, David writes verse verse 10. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. In the days before chocolate and cane sugar and Nutella, honey was a real luxury. It was the sweetest thing you could think of. And so for David to say that his experience of feeding himself on God's word was sweeter than honey, well, he couldn't think of a a stronger way of putting it. Why? Well, because God's word revives the soul and makes wise the simple and gives light to the eyes. And finally, verse 11. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. It's worth just uh, pausing there for a moment. David is clearly commending God's word to us. Uh, the picture he paints is a, a life of obedience to God's word, and it's, it's a life that looks so appealing, so full and fulfill, fulfilled and, and wonderful. And yet, if we've tried to read God's word and then to obey it, my guess is that for many of us, our experience of that process is, is not quite as good as what David describes It feels like hard work reading through Leviticus and Exodus. It's not always plain how it's sweeter than honey. Or or think about David's own experience of his life. We saw even last week in Psalm 18 that his experience of living with the Lord was not a carefree and sweet and easy experience. It was full of peril and death. The snares of death were, were kind of coiling around him. There were many times when his foes appeared to have a better life than David's. And so we're bound to sort of try to think, well, how does David's exalted description of God's word fit with with life and reality? How can David say, verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward? My guess is that we haven't always experienced that in our lives. And certainly in David's life, it looked very much like an up and down roller coaster, not a straightforward reward for keeping God's word. Well, I think it's helpful to realize that the reward he is talking about is not the reward of an easy and carefree life. Many centuries later came another king, a descendant of David. And like David, this other king died, but three days later he came back to life. And as this King Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection, he said these amazing words in Luke 24. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. You see, the whole Bible points us forward to Jesus and to the great reward that comes from knowing him and following him. And the greatest reward possible is to know that death has been defeated and that we have eternal life as we follow the resurrected Jesus. And so I think even though David didn't probably know how it would all come about, I think 
in a very real way, his great reward was hope beyond the grave, freedom from the terror of death. And so when David says in Psalm 19, there is great reward in keeping God's law, he's not talking about an easy, carefree life. He's talking about the ultimate reward of knowing that we have eternal life. You see, the skies declare God's glory, but they don't tell us how to escape death. Only the scriptures teach us and point us forward to Jesus. And only then do we know. And that is why I think David is so overwhelmed by God's word. It is what he needs to be made wise for salvation. I heard this week about a tropical island off the coast of Australia that was being put up as the prize for a raffle draw. I don't know if you saw this on the BBC website. Um, They even had a promotional video to show you what this tropical island looked like. And it was incredible. There was a private resort already built for you on the island. It comes with staff to run it for you. There were gleaming white sandy beaches and amazing surf. And at the end of the video, the question was asked, paradise awaits you. Are you ready? And I found myself saying yes. I then read on and discovered further down the article that some bloke called Josh had already won the island after buying a 33-pound raffle ticket. And I couldn't help feeling a little bit envious of this bloke Josh and his paradise island. But you see, in that moment, I need God's word to instruct me. I need to be reminded that island paradises don't last Because there is sin and death in the world. I need God's word to lift my heart up above those things that I can see with my physical eyes. To remember that Jesus Christ has died and come back to life. To give me a hope that can never perish, spoil or fade. I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps not a tropical island paradise. But maybe there's a particular relationship. Which you think will meet all your needs. Or a job that you think will satisfy you. Or that there'll be enough money that you can get that will protect you from the the snares of life and the storms that come and if we have developed a lifestyle where we turn away from God's word and and turn on the TV and and play Pokemon Go or whatever it is or uh, read books or distract ourselves with, with gardening and whatever else comes our way and we don't spend time in God's word we are cutting ourselves off from the very thing that will help us be wise and to know where to find lasting reward and so as we head out into a new week and we are bombarded with all kinds of messages about how to live a a prosperous and carefree and joyful life we need God's word to shape our thinking and I guess the application is clear to us tonight if we stop reading his word come with King David and see what great reward there is in reading it. Make it a priority. Let it shape your thinking about life and death and what matters daily. And so it's very simple, isn't it? God reveals his glory in the skies and God reveals his glory in the scriptures. If we just look up enough and look down enough, then we will understand our world and all its brokenness and we'll have a firm and fixed hope through death And job is done. 
It's not that simple, is it? Not my experience of being a Christian. My guess is that many of you haven't found it that simple. And I don't think King David has found it to be that simple. Because the psalm doesn't finish at verse 11. In fact, David finishes on a note of agony. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Verse 13. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. I love how real this is. I think David knows how wonderful God's revelation is, both in the skies and the scriptures. And yet he also knows that he is very able to turn away from such glorious revelation and go and do his own thing willfully, sinfully, terribly. The human heart, if you like, is like that uh, shopping trolley that you see over on its own when you're in a rush and you think, great, a spare trolley. You grab it and you head off into the shop and you quickly discover why it was left on its own. It's got a wonky wheel. And no matter how hard you try to push it forward down the aisle, it swerves off and hits anything it can find. Well, I reckon that's the picture of the human hearts here at the end of Psalm 19. We know where we should go. We have God's word to show us. And yet, as we look at our hearts, we're constantly going astray. We willfully sin. We have all kinds of errors that plague us. And so what does David do? Well, he prays. Verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a prayer for strength. It's a prayer for help to speak and think correctly. It's a prayer, I think, for strength to come back again and again to God's word to allow God's word to shape our priorities and what we live for. And David needs help, and so do we. He casts himself on the one rock who can take his weight, his redeemer, the one who knows how weak he is and yet rescues him. As I finish, I think, I wonder if, like me, you know that you are weak and easily distracted, Perhaps thinking back over last week, you know that you've allowed the voice of the world to speak a louder message than the voice of God's word. We've perhaps believed the lie, the promises of pleasure and fulfillment, and not believed God's word about his reward. We've thought little about Jesus and eternal life. Well, as we finish, if, like me, you know you need God's help, Uh, Why don't we spend just a moment uh, in quiet? If you feel able to, why not spend some time on your own in prayer, just running back once again to the one who is our rock and our redeemer, asking him for the help you need to believe his word and to stand on his promises. After a moment of silence, Rebecca will come and lead us in our prayers.